To have passion in life is everything. What's your Everest? Oh, is it yeah. that 200 inch box? They just look so impressive when they're wide. Especially running away. <laughs> Welcome to this week's episode of Eastman's Elevated. It's like a think tank for outdoor activity. Sounds exactly like my hunting. Just always thinking about it, always trying to evolve it and make it better. Here's your host, Brian Barney. Hey, what's happening, guys? Got a brand new Eastman's Elevated for you. So today on the show, I've got Michael Alba. So this is the first chance I've got to meet Michael. Man, he's just got the passion. He's one of us. Uh, he's really intelligent, and he's just constantly thinking about and evolving his game. Uh, so today is all about the mule deer. We do touch on some elk hunting in the in the middle part, but you can tell he's a mule deer fanatic just like I am and just spends his time in different states, in different habitats, learning mule deer and, and trying to be successful. So it made for a really good in-depth conversation. I really enjoyed it, and I know you guys are going to enjoy it too. I just want to thank my sponsors for today's show. I want to thank Matthews Bows. Um, man, Matthews is just building some awesome bows. Um I'm so impressed at the tunability, the forgiveness, uh, the bows hold a tune for me. So this year I'm shooting that V3, uh, I've already got a couple harvests under my belt, uh, that desert mule deer, and then uh, my bear, and, and I just can't wait to have this bow for an entire season. This thing really shoots for me. Uh, I'm really impressed at how quiet this bow is as well, and and having a quiet bow really helps with animals jumping the string. So I'm going to put that to the test in, in Hawaii as uh, those deer are the very best at jumping strings. Those axes are, are so wired. Uh, so going to test that out. But I just know this bow is a performer. I mean, I shot uh, a, a couple 299s this year on the, the Vegas um, you know, 300 score, which is a really good score for me. And I shot it with my hunting bow, 70 pounds. I shot it with my hunting arrows, so small arrows, my hunting stabilizers. I mean, this thing is just an absolute shooter. Uh, so if you're in the market for a new bow, make sure to check out Matthews and everything they have going on. I truly believe the best bows on the market right now. I also want to thank Sig Sauer Optics. So impressed by these optics. Uh, so you guys may have heard the podcast where I talked about using the 15s. Uh, they've been a game changer for me. They they turned up some more bears this season. Uh, I love their they they run an 11 by 45. Uh, their spotting scope is so crystal clear. Uh, so impressed with this thing. It's got an 80 mil objective lens, 27 by 55 power, uh, edge to edge clarity, great low light performance. Uh, they're just building great optics that compete with all those highest brands. So I'm um, super impressed with what Sig Sauer is putting out. And I actually just mounted uh, a new scope uh, to a Savage rifle that I got. So I got a Savage 6.5 Creedmoor and uh, put on a, a, a Sig Sauer scope on it that's got the BDX system. So I think it's a 2x12. And that BDX system is really cool. It's where uh, an app from your phone talks to your rifle scope, talks to your rangefinder, all to put you the, the point of aim. So pretty cool deal. I've been playing around with that and um, getting that rifle to shoot. But just some, some great optics over there at Sig Sauer. So if you're in the market, uh, I, I don't even think I mentioned the rangefinders, which I believe are the best on the market. I'm so impressed at the consistent ranges on light and dark targets, the powerful laser, the quick readouts, uh, low light performance. 
they're just building great optics, great rangefinders, great rifle scopes. So if you're in the market for any glass for hunting, make sure to check out Sig Sauer Optics. Over there at Eastman's, uh, I've got that promo code. So if you're interested in getting a subscription to the magazine, Eastman's Bow Hunting Journal, Eastman's Hunting Journal. I have two articles coming out in the next Eastman's Bow Hunting Journal. Uh, I'd tell you what they are if I could remember them. <laughs> um, yeah, we've just been going crazy here. Uh, work's been crazy and uh, hunting stuff's been crazy and just getting prepared for these hunts. And, and um, But but anyways, these these they're great magazines. We put our heart and soul into these magazines. We've got subscriber stories. Uh, we've got the pro staff articles, which is the two that I mentioned. And then, um, you know, we also have the MRS, which is the members research section. So uh, this section really gives a lot of data on these different states, different tags, whether that's rifle and whether it's bow. And, and this system has really helped me learn uh, all these Western states and where to apply and how to apply, how the draw works, like a better understanding of how everything works. So, you know, I can make sure that I'm applying for the right tag that I have a chance at drawing and make sure I can apply for, you know, sheep tags. I'd love to draw like a desert tag one of these years or a Rocky Mountain tag. And my chances are about up. I'm not sure if there's any more states. Well, I know I have Arizona I'm still in for um, desert sheep. So who knows? Maybe they'll pull my name out of a hat. But, uh, you know, all these quality mule deer, quality elk tags, you know, I've learned about all these things through the MRS. Uh, so we have a promo code for you, Elevated321. And that'll get you a free Outdoor Edge knife, which is a really good knife, uh, and a subscription to both magazines for $50. Um, or you could do a subscription to one magazine and the knife for, I believe, $30. So check out that. And, um, man, yeah, like I say, just busy um, pouring concrete here this morning after I get done with the podcast. And, and um, yesterday set trusses on another project and um, just got some really good clients some good houses going and uh, keeping the guys busy there and keeping myself busy for sure. Um, just trying to be at my best and whether that's, you know, at, at work or my, my hunting preparation, my shooting. I'm stoked I got these Western Hunting Summits coming up. Uh, not this weekend, but the, the next couple weekends after that. Uh, gosh, made it over to the big hole fishing uh, salmon flies last weekend so yeah it's just it's just busy it's just summertime but it's good uh, I like to be busy keeps me out of trouble so um, well let's get into this podcast it's a great one uh, Michael Alba I'm your host Brian Barney Eastman's Elevated here we go okay I'm live I've got Michael Alba on this morning um Michael and I connected through Instagram, and so we've been having a great conversation this morning. So, uh, yeah, thanks for being on the podcast, Michael. Yeah, Brian, thank you so much. I'm just so happy to be here. Uh, been a follower of that podcast for a while. It keeps me motivated running every time I hit the trail. It's the it's just great information to soak up and learn from. And I wanted to kind of share what I had figured out in the last eight years of bow hunting, and hopefully some people could take away from what I learned. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I really appreciate it. Yeah, it's uh, it's been fun chatting this morning. So you hunt, um, you've moved up to the Oregon area, and uh, then you're hunting a lot of that desert at Oregon, and then also traveling to hunt to some of these other western states, taking advantage of their opportunities. Yeah, Brian, uh, I 
mostly only bow hunt. I think I've harvested uh, one animal with a rifle, and that's a story on to itself. That was a desert sheep tag I drew in California. Oh, wow. Completely, completely lucky. Um, and that's a that's a great story, and that was taken with the rifle. But every other animal I've harvested in the last uh, eight years has been with the bow. And I, I live, I, you know, we moved to Oregon about five years ago from the big city in California because it was just time for, for that and for our family to kind of get away and be in an uh, area that was closer to nature. And I, I've always been a big desert fan. I hunted the desert in California. I go to over-the-counter archery in uh, Arizona every year in the desert, like the desert desert. Um, it's face of the moon type desert all the way down there, Sonoran Desert, like by Mexico. And then I try to stay in the desert in uh, Oregon as well, eastern Oregon, kind of on the Idaho border where it's sagebrush. And you get into some mountain ranges that have aspen groves and mountain mahogany and uh, all that type of stuff and rim rock. Um, so I, I just like that, uh, that kind of topography and environment. It's so fun to be – to it's, you get challenged with it between the sounds you have to overcome with your feet and all these different things. And for me, it's the ultimate for hunting mule deer. Yeah. I, I I'm really, uh, uh, gaining a love for that desert. I've always liked hunting there, but I'm really trying to focus my effort in a lot of that desert. So both of those places you've mentioned, you know, I've, I've hunted, you know, both the, the, uh, Arizona desert, uh, you know, and, and you like those, those flats down there are real interesting and they, they pose a lot of interesting challenges as well. Just like you started to mention with the sound and, and, and open country. And then also it's like uh, low populations in the desert, you know, deer per square mile and so you know you can spend uh, uh days not even finding a deer or looking for tracks and so like i think all these different terrains like they they challenge our skill set and challenge us to get better and improve and kind of evolve or uh, adapt to that habitat and i i think that desert is such a a great like place for uh that that bow hunting challenge you know it is tough in that desert to get it done so congratulations kudos to you dude eight years with a bow and and finding all that success with a bow and and you know as well as anybody it's like the most difficult challenge on planet earth so uh good on you committing to it and having such good success early in your hunting career well, thank you, Brian. Uh, I appreciate that. And I had no idea what I was getting myself into. Um, I got together with my wife and her family's from the Midwest and they love to bow hunt. Um, and I had hunted like rabbits and stuff with my dad and a 22 in California, just kind of growing up in the outdoors and never really took it past that point. Um, and my mom was a bit of a hippie and didn't uh, like the idea of harvesting animals. So I was kind of torn in a family where we didn't go one way or another. And then the deal breaker was, is I met my wife and she's like, well, my family hunts, but they hunt with a bow. And, uh, I said, wow, that sure is cool. Like I'd, I'd love to learn how to shoot a bow. And then, you know, shortly thereafter I bought a bow and I just started geeking out on the, the technicalities of it. And I loved it, man. And, uh, I, I work in the film business as a camera operator and we have all these little, like, attention to detail tools that if they're not perfect, like your shot's not right or it's not level or you've missed the exposure or something. So it really kind of played to my personality, the, the bow and, and, and getting your, your string just dialed and just right, the peep, everything from the weight, the front of center, all that stuff. I just, I just got fascinated with it and was shooting nonstop. 
Um, and then that kind of rolled into like, let's see now that I can hit the mark, let's see if we can do something with an animal. And then you go out there and you just get schooled like hunt after hunt. And you're like, okay, so this is one of the most difficult things you've ever done. Let's see how I can uh, get better at it. And I think the OCD just took over and I, I had to be successful. Um, so I just kept, kept pounding it. And I harvested my, you know, my first deer in California. And I think I took one in Arizona and I've, and I've some elk in New Mexico and and various places. But, uh, every time you learn something and, and you, and for me, I haven't ever had to take an animal to have fun on a hunt. This last time I went down to over the counter in Arizona in January. It's actually the most amount of time I spent on a hunt and I didn't harvest something. It was 18 days. I was down there straight. Um, and I had tons of adventure and all sorts of stuff, but I was after a big one this year because I had the meat in the freezer, and those big ones are a lot trickier than <laughs> just harvesting something, and they do different things. And uh, I, I was really there was one that I was after, and you know you see them once or twice in ten days, and it's it's kind of interesting. Man, that's um, y- your journey is beautiful, Michael. Like I love that how how it happens or how you got hooked on it. You know how you found bow hunting and found that through your wife, and then just all of a sudden got got hooked on it and got hooked on the challenge. And it's like uh, uh, when you have passion for something, it like the work comes easy. You're just willing to put in the work to improve to give yourself the best chance. But 18 days down in the desert, man, that's a long hunt. That's tough to keep your head right 18 days straight of hunting. <laughs> it, it's tough to keep everything right. I mean, you've got <laughs> friends calling you and asking if you're all right down there. There was one point where I did a uh, I had a full-on rookie mistake where I actually locked myself out of my car, and uh, I actually had to have my wife FedEx me a key to get into the car. So I flipped the script and did a whole different hunt for like three days while that key was on its way down. I've never done this before. I'll never do it again, and I'll have a backup. But uh, it was just this one particular type of camo pant where I think my release got caught on the key ring. And it pulled it out, and I was glassing a, a canyon, and I, I think that's where it went. I never found it. Got back to the truck. I Luckily, I had a buddy that had nothing going on that day that drove miles out to get me in this area. And, you know, then I had to hunt out of the tent for like three days until that second key got there so that I could get around to the different spots I'm used to going to. And that was an interesting thing. That was like day six of the hunt. <clears throat> and then there's just so many different levels. I went from – uh, one part of the country that is that face of the moon kind of Sonoran desert hunting to an area that has more of an attraction where there's uh, more water holes and actually actually some uh, agricultural fields miles away. So like the, the different types of hunting you can do in that desert change, you know, when you just go five miles this way or 10 miles that way. And it's kind of awesome because you can experience completely different things from just getting up on a hillside um, and glassing for, you know, five miles, four miles, three miles in any direction, looking for the littlest bit of movement to sitting on water for, uh, eight hours a day, which I have a real hard time doing, but many people have success doing on hunts like that, um, to actually learning patterns of deer going to and from feed sources. And, and sometimes the big one doesn't do it, but every fourth day, and when the rut happens, a little it, it happens in a different way. Like they might hit a different uh, coolie or different draw or different wash each day. So there's all these different things you can do. I brought some rattling horns down there this year. I've never had more success rattling. I rattled in three different bucks with my horns, and they came in on a string to 30 yards. 
uh, it wasn't the buck I was after, but it was cool to see that kind of behavior happening. Um, and of course the biggest one won't do that. (laughs) (laughs) And that's why I get so fascinated with these big deer because they, you know, when those deer get to be five, six, seven years old and whatever the score is of the antlers, usually they're, you can tell that's the, that's a nice buck. Uh, they just do different stuff and it's really interesting. It's not only in Arizona, it's everywhere I go. I was in Oregon and I saw this big buck on the winter range. I just wanted to take pictures of him. I was watching him, kind of chasing him around with the truck and trying to get closer so I could get the shot. And uh, you would watch what this big buck would do. He's running around with 30 does and, you know, he'd start pushing him one direction and then he'd check. He'd look over every now and then. But once you got a little too close, he'd get the does running in a different direction and run with them for like, 30 or 40 yards and then flip a U-turn and just bail out and go into the mountains on his own. And I'm like, well, you know, that's why that deer's probably 200 inches plus because he's doing stuff like that, you know? And it's like, man, that's the challenge that I'm trying to get after these days uh, is if the freezer's full. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That is the key, isn't it? If the freezer's full, but uh, no, I, I like what you're talking about. Boy, that locking or losing your keys is my worst nightmare. Like, uh, oh, man. and I think about it, that could happen to any of us at any time. Good for you to uh, like to be able to adapt and continue on your hunt FedEx, the key down. I've often thought about that, but even you mentioning it, will you know, I'm going to make sure that I've got my stuff right. And I've done the, the hide a key before, but I've also had it fall off down the highway. So, um, you know, but I all, I, I try to have an extra key in my glove box and figure I'll bust out my back window, you know, something happens, but, uh, man, that is my worst nightmare, but, but good for you, like being able to adapt. And it's some of those things, like we go on these adventures that we, you know, uh, sometimes we don't know what the challenges are going to be, you know, you just know there's going to be challenges and that was definitely a major one for you. But, um, yeah, I love what you're talking about with these mature bucks as well. Um, their instincts just get so keen. Like you say that five, six, seven years old, it seems like every year they just, um, you know, they, they sharpen those instincts and, and they get more keen and, and they, uh, like it, it's just their, I'm not sure if it's their knowledge or their intentions, but they just seem to evolve exponentially every year that they put on or every hunting season they make it through. They seem to learn little tricks and tactics and, um, it's wild to sit back and observe those big deer and how they act and how they behave like you're talking about, uh, you know, and I've, I've seen, uh, you know, where those big bucks will always let a small buck go through the opening first or just the way that they carry themselves with a group of bucks. You know, you can tell they're a dominant buck, but they, they just don't make as many mistakes. And then they trust their instincts. If anything's weird or anything's funky or doesn't seem right, they are out of there. You know, they, they just, um, they get out of country and live to see another day. So I, I'm with you. I think, um, you know, it's the ultimate challenge to try to take one of these older age class bucks and try to outsmart one of them. And, you know, just the, the, the pyramid of age classes says that, you know, to try to find one of those five, six, seven year old deer, like there's going to be less of those than four year old bucks and, and less four year old bucks than three year old bucks. And so, you know, you, you really are, you know, looking for, you know, when you set your sights that high, there's very few deer that meet that criteria and they're, they're really tough to locate and really tough to kill. But it's kind of the beauty of the, like the Western bow hunting is that you can keep setting these challenges out in front of you that get more and more difficult with every step you take. And it sounds like 
you know, that's where you're at in your bow hunting journey and, and me as well. Like there's just something about those, those big old bucks that like, uh, that keep me training hard, that keep me on the trails, keep me shooting day in, day out. Like you have to put everything into it just to give yourself a chance at success. And, and, uh, I think that journey and that process is really fun. Um, I'm with you a hundred percent on that, buddy. Uh, and you know, I've taken a few deer with a bow since I've started, um, in different States and, and to not sound jaded or like a trophy hunter. Uh, I, I believe those older age class bucks are really the ultimate, especially a mule deer on public land. Um, be, especially where people can come every, every year because they get educated, uh, and they just know what's going on, man. And, you know, I think you go to different units. Like I've drawn a couple units in areas that, uh, ha, you know, are harder to get into. And, and the, even the older age class deer are less wary because they just, I think they see less people. Um, and it's just less traffic all the time. So, so those over the counter public land, big monarchs that are, have been around for five, six, seven years. Like that's, that's my ultimate passion. And just to see them, sometimes I say, Hey, I just want to see this buck this year. If I can see him a couple days, I'll have a successful hunt. And there was one that I've been after for a couple years in a row here in Oregon, and and I've never seen him during season. Um, and he uh, he's still out there, and he's a big old four by four, just a monster, huge frame. I think he's got to be pushing, you know, the magical 200 inch mark. And the first year I was after him, uh, I saw him four days in a row with seven groups of bucks up on a hillside, perfect summer pattern. I said, this is awesome. I'm going to get this guy, you know, first thing, uh, season I came back, you know, 10 days later, there was an antelope hunt between my scouting time and that opening season archery. And I couldn't find him, but all the other bucks were there except for the big one. So here I am at home just like scratching my head. Where did this buck go? Let's look over here. Let's look over there. Did he rub his velvet off? Has he gone totally nocturnal? Where did he go? You know, and that's, and, and I couldn't find him that season. Never saw him. I went to that spot for another seven days and I couldn't find him. And then, uh, lo and behold, the next year I show up in that same area. I'm looking for him. I'm looking in that area. I go check a couple other areas. Five miles as the crow flies, I found him with another group of bucks bigger the next year. And he was over there, and I found the day before season. I sat on him all day, eight hours sitting on him, watching him, just 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 enjoying watching what he does, who he hangs out with, and what type of behavior he was what what he was doing. You know, you think he'd be up high in the summer, but the big bucks are where big bucks are. And he was kind of down low on this juniper and wasn't where I thought I would find him. And he would just stay in this thick stuff, and he'd come out and go feed in a burn, and then come back into this thick stuff. Um, and that, that later that evening I was watching him, I was going to put him to bed so I could get up first thing in the morning on opening day and go after him. And someone in that Canyon had fired off like a high powered rifle a ways away. And I just watched this buck with his buddy who was also a pretty nice buck. They both stood up in this rim rock and they just started looking around and I'm, it's like three minutes of them just checking out what's going on. And I'm like, okay, what's what's going to happen here? I'm 300 yards away from this thing, just watching him with my spotting scope, and he, and the the other buck takes a few steps and starts walking along this rim rock, and then he starts following his buddy, and then that little walk turns into a trot, turns into a run, turns into a full blown sprint on the top of the hill, like going down the spine and off into oblivion, and I'm like, man. 
<laughs> so I spent another seven days looking for this deer, and uh, I can't find him. So I had to switch tactics and, and go somewhere else and look for something else. And it's always interesting listening to your perspective as to when to move on and give up on something. And then you hear these guys that just get so obsessed with one deer. And then you're like, well, what do I do? I want that one. I mean, I've got history with this one. He's out there somewhere, you know, and it's just so, so challenging and so awesome. Yeah, what a heartbreaker. Yeah, well, you bring up a good point. Like, uh, in today's day and age, like, those those giant bucks that you're talking about, and they don't have to always score 200, but just those big, heavy, mature, older age class deer, um, you know, they're – there isn't a, a mule deer hunter in the West that, that doesn't want to kill that deer. It isn't, you know, and, and in today's current day and age, you know, it's not like 15 years ago when I started hunting these out-of-state hunts and things where nobody was really going after these deer with a bow uh, or there wasn't as many guys. But now, you know, it's caught on and it's got popular. And so um, there's a lot of guys that are willing to go really hard to give themselves an opportunity at a big deer. And I think that's why, you know, another one of the reasons why they're so special, those giant deer. And, you know, I've been fortunate enough to ha to, to be able to harvest some, some giant bucks that I'm really proud of. But, you know, with those bucks, for every one that I've harvested, there's probably two giants that have got away from me, you know. And so, right. like, uh, the same as, as your interaction with that buck and finding them in two-year history – like I have that same thing with bucks. Like I, um, you know, I remember my my last trip to Colorado. You know, I I found the one. You know, he he just well over thirty wide, thirty two, thirty four, giant deep forks, so heavy, couple stickers, like just a monster buck. And I I did oh, I got a, I got a pretty good chance at him. I had him walk by at thirty yards, and then finally presented a shot, and and he was standing with his head facing to the right. And uh, there was no wind where I was at, but there was a pretty strong left to right on the shot, and I executed perfectly, and I just watched that arrow just sail to the right, sail to the right, and go Oof. right in front of his chest. And then just like you with that buck, like you get one chance, or you didn't even get one chance at that buck. You just found him, you know, but right. like I had one chance at that buck, and then he just totally disappeared, like never to be seen again. And I think in this current day, day and age – like these bucks are also evolving to the hunting pressure as well. You talked about premium units and those mature bucks not being quite as on edge, but these these ones, these easy to draw tags or, you know, pretty much any tag that we can get out west nowadays, like um there's guys gunning for him and I think these deer have evolved to the pressure and like your buck, he wasn't living in that Alpen basin in that classic high country zone where he should have been. He almost worked down to where there was more cover where he felt more mm -hmm. secure, where he could hide better, where, you know, they find these places and it's not by accident where they can grow up to get old, where hunters don't find them and don't get stopped right. on them and, and don't locate them. And whether that's, you know, deep in the wilderness somewhere where nobody hikes or it's down lower in that cover, you know, and I, I found that in high hunting zones, like one of the biggest deer I ever kill, like this 210, he had a, a great big 7, 8 inch flyer and 34 wide, like this great buck that I harvested, uh, but I saw him 
uh, in seven days, so 14 glassing sessions, I saw that buck twice. Like, that buck did not make mistakes, and he was living lower on the mountain, you know? He just, like, where he could really use that cover and such to to be able to hide and hide from the pressure. And so, yeah, I think um, there's still great opportunity in today's day and age, um, but we have to continue to adapt and evolve and continue to put in the hard work to be, you know, to get our skill set to, to be at our very best during season when we're going after these bucks. And it sounds like that's the exact same journey that you're on is just trying to improve that skill set and knowledge in these different habitats, uh, sharpen your skills to be able to match wits with these with these giant bucks. And the and the other thing I really liked, like as you're talking is like um, it's sounds you really enjoy the process. And I think that's a major key that just having an opportunity at a giant buck like that is really special just to find and to see a buck like that. And and that for me is it as well. Like um, there's so much challenge. You said it'd be a success just to find a big buck and you're right. Like it takes so much uh, effort and and, and intentional effort and in checking all these different locations just to find a buck like that is success on the mountain you know and i i think that's the way you have to look at it is you have to enjoy the process like enjoy every bit of it in the challenge and it it sounds like you're in that exact same place oh brian and i do and we look forward to it and you know here what is it now it's almost april 1st and other than the baseball season starting uh, all you're thinking about is like the tags and when do the tags come in and how much time can I spend on the map before I go to sleep, before I get in trouble with my wife and <laughs> <laughs> all that stuff? Because uh, it really just consumes you, especially when you know that one's out there and you haven't gotten them and you just need to go see if he's still there. Um, it's it's really kind of all all consuming. And I love that about uh, about bow hunting. And, and then practicing your bow and getting getting it all dialed in in the off season and switching strings. I'm putting a new string on and going with some new arrows and, and tweaking with some stuff to see if I can shoot a little bit better. And in the last few seasons, I've when I first started bow hunting, I was really crazy about shooting. I used to be able to hit like a coffee cup top at 100 yards consistently with my with my bow. And that bow was my favorite bow. It was a Matthews MR5. And I had an accident where I bent the riser, and then I kind of lost a little confidence in it and went with the newer Matthews bow. So now I'm shooting the Vertex, which is a great bow. I love it. But there was something about that raw horsepower of that MR5. I think it was one of the fastest bows Matthews ever made. And I was able to shoot a really heavy arrow a long ways, and it got there really well for me. And in the last few years, I've kind of spent less time practicing archery and more time you know, working on finding the big buck and it's just such a delicate balancing game. You have to do all the things all the time. You can't let any one of them go. Um, and you know, you get a little, your range kind of comes in a little bit if you're not practicing with the bow all the time and you're not making sure that you're, you're dead on and all your equipment's perfect all the time. Like I had in the beginning, but in the beginning I had no idea where the deer were and I would, I would just try to find them which was fine because I wasn't looking for the older age class bucks and I was plenty happy just just uh, going through the motions and, and doing the whole thing and, and getting a deer down and and uh, making sure it got back to the cooler in one piece. And that was so awesome 
uh, in the very beginning, but now it's just getting to that chance where you can find those bigger age class ones that haunt you at night (laughs) and making sure everything is good with your equipment and your skill set. And I've been geeking out on footwear, man. And it's like all about footwear these days when you go to different places. When I go to Arizona, I've got three different types of shoes I wear, and I've got three different types of uh, sound deadening things I wear on the bottom of the shoes because you get on those little malapies where the rocks make noise, and the felt works better here. And if you use the hokas with the felt, then you're really kicking butt, you know. And if you try to use your Danner boots, it's going to make too much noise, and the footprint's wider than you want it to be. But if you're going to get into some of the rocky stuff, you got you better have boots on and not tennis shoes. So it's like you're doing all these different things to to just to close that gap a little bit. And all that skill set uh, it can only be obtained by experience. I feel like really. Yeah, um, man, you couldn't be more spot on. It's so fun to like hear, like, uh, to have something that drives us so hard like this. To have for us guys to have passion and something that we truly love. It feels like you have purpose, you know. And it's not for financial gain. It's not for um, status. It's all like this, this, um, uh, this personal challenge. And I love that. And I love the way you describe like putting the work in. Um, you know, with your bow. You know, at the start, it was really like honing your skills with. The bow and making sure you can shoot and you can't let any of those skills slip those skill sets slip but you also you you have to prioritize your time and so lately you know you're really trying to spend the time like learning these the these different places and these different habitats to be able to turn up those trophy deer because you're right if you if you can't find any deer it doesn't matter how good you can shoot and and vice versa if you can mm-hmm. find deer and you can't shoot, you're, you're not going to be able to get it done on them as well. So it is being able to put time in, in all these different facets and these skill sets to, to really be a complete hunter, you know. So, like, I, I love hearing you talk about that and hearing your passion for it. And, um, yeah, I you know, and, and, and then the, the stocking skill, and you talked about your different footwear for different places. Um, it, it's so key to – to, to be able to have to figure out your gear and dial it in because there's nothing worse than you know bringing the wrong set of boots on a hunt you know a set of boots that get wet and your feet are soaked or uh, you know you you're too heavy of a boot and down in that desert and your feet are just sweating and and every day you know you you start to get that trench foot or swamp foot because there's so much water like it takes a while to dial in all these different systems for the different habitats, um, you know, and I think all that plays a role in success is dialing that in. And and you said something that that was really important, like um, uh, experience is the best teacher and the only way to learn. And I think you're right. I think um, thinking about these things, though, you can shorten that learning curve, like uh, listening to the podcast or uh, reading different articles or watching some of the videos. I was watching um, – South Cox came out with a new video for Mule Deer. I got to send him a message. It was a really good one that I was watching early this morning, uh, him stalking with his recurve. And I think you can pick up tricks and tactics through learning from other people's mistakes or learning from other people in general and shorten that learning curve, like knowing what to expect when you get there. But none of that matters without experience. Like you've got to go experience it for yourself and you've got to make these mistakes. And and even though you shorten the learning curve, there is still a learning curve there that you have to put your time in. And I've always said that experience is the best teacher. And I, you know, I think that's why I've been able to have this success is I've, 
you know, committed my whole lifestyle to, to this bow hunting and spend, you know, I'm, I'm not sure how many days I get to spend. I'm so fortunate where I've structured my life where now, you know, it's probably a hundred days or more a year of hunting, you know, with spring bear and different seasons and then the fall season. So I'm really fortunate that I get that experience, but I truly believe that has made me the hunter that I am. Good deal. I, I agree with that. Um, and the, the podcast is such a great resource and I've been all over all the podcasts since, uh, I started doing this just cause I love soaking up all the knowledge and, and some of it you soak up and you try to remember it all. But when you get in the heat of the moment, uh, you know, learning from your mistakes and, and, and making those mistakes in the first place is the only way for it to really get ingrained in you to, to, to step this way or to make sure that wind is perfect before you move on because you don't want to blow that deer out because you might not see him for another six or seven days or ever again. And that type of stuff, uh, is just getting out there and doing it. Um, and it's interesting to see all the different people that are in the woods now because of COVID and, and, uh, out there bow hunting and wanting to get into the sport. And I think it's great for the sport. And I love that there's all these folks out there, uh, getting into it, but I, I wonder if they're going to be there day in and day out year season after season, because it is a tricky thing to do. And, and, you, and you, you need years underneath your belt to, to get good at it. I feel like. Yeah, you really do. Yeah, you need years under your belt of doing those and and truly learning from those mistakes, too. I know like one of the stupidest ones that I have made over and over again that has taken me years to finally believe it, you know, is and we all know how important the wind is. And and um, but there's this, you know, there's this side of me that sees this deer in a good spot or a buck in a good spot. And it's like, oh, I. <laughs> I think I can get away with the wind. It's kind of coming down the ridge, and I think if I pop up on that deal, you know, I almost feel like I can cheat the wind. And any time I do that and try to cheat the wind, mm -hmm. I make all this effort on the stock, and I get over there, and he ends up catching my wind. And I, I just think to myself, oh, God, I'm, I'm such a moron. I'm so stupid. I know better <laughs> than that, and I still acted on that stock. Like I almost got greedy with it, you know, and, and through messing that up, time and time and time again like mm -hmm. like now it's almost got to be like a, a the wind is almost like a religion that you have to believe in and not try to cheat and get away with because the minute you try to cheat that wind it just seems like it never works out but you're right you have to learn those tough lessons and 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 some of us have to learn them over and over and over again and, and then some of these lessons you know we pick up on fairly quick and then we learn it and we live by those rules or those uh, skill sets but i i think it's i think it's important to like have a game plan or a blueprint in your head like what you're looking for when you first start hunting muley bucks like you you might find a good shooter buck and and you just make a play at him because you found him you don't want to lose him you want to get a stock in you want to get close and, and and like it's I, I think it's important to like build this blueprint in our head in our head of what we're looking for exactly. So we don't just tromp in and blow up the situation or spook those deer. Like all of a sudden, you know, at least for like the early season deer, you know, I want to bed them down. And usually, you know, I don't make a play on their their morning bed because they tend to get up before I can get there, and the winds are a little shifty. And so I've learned to look and watch them and wait till they get in the afternoon bed. I can get the winds right that way. The thermals are more consistent. Usually I get a little directional wind, which helps with sound. And so, like, I've learned that that lesson over the years. And so now I have this blueprint 
for success that I kind of look for in the mountains and every species and every habitat is different. And, and you kind of try to transpose those skill sets to, to different hunting. But I know, you know, hunting elk, I hunt them totally different elk. I hunt in their feeding features in morning and right. in the evening and I'll coyote the herd and then, you know, wait to make my opportunity, wait to close in to when I see my opportunity. So it can be totally different, but I, I think it's real important to build this blueprint for success in your head of what you're looking for so you're not just charging in every time you find a deer or every time you see a deer like like you're really looking for a high percentage opportunity i'm with you on that um and i've had success charging in and that's probably the worst thing that can happen because you get (laughs) success once charging in and you think you can do it or it happened for me that one time but then you put more years and years in with the sport and it doesn't happen. Like you're saying, especially on the big bucks or if the wind's not right, you know, you have to have that perfect blueprint or that game plan. Um, and that's when it's fun to sit back and watch that buck. And hopefully he comes there and he's patterned and, and nobody's messed with him. And he does the same relative thing two or three days in a row. And you can get a game plan and figure out on Onyx maps if there's a way to get up on the top of that hill and find out where do you think his second bed might be. And if the wind will be good in that draw, um, two days from now when you think you're going to be there at the right time when he goes through that area, like that's the game plan. I think you're talking about Brian that you have to know about and, and pre visualize that success and that area that he's going to go through. And you still don't know if it's going to happen that way or not. And you could have a 10% chance of just going right after him and sticking an arrow on him. It might work. It might not, but man, I still enjoy all that process getting to that, one little chess game piece that I want to get to where I think he's going to come through in the end when he goes to his second bed. And, and it's, and you're right, it's different for deer than it is for elk. And I approach it completely differently, excuse me, for elk than I do for deer. Um, and for me with elk, I don't do much calling and, uh, I try to hunt them just like mule deer. And I feel like I have more success that way. Um, but the thing that's great about elk is if you do call, I do call just a little bit, and I'm a horrible caller. <laughs> I'm not winning any uh, competitions with calling, but I can make it a sound, so at least they answer back like a mile or two away. And you know there's a bull or two down in that draw, uh, messing around down there in a wall or whatever he's doing or traveling around. And that's the thing that you don't get with the mule deer that uh, that makes me so fascinated with mule deer. And, and it makes it so difficult with mule deer because when they disappear into that timber, they're in the timber. You don't know where they're at. With the elk, you can you still kind of have this hope going that they're down in that draw. And if you play or play the wind the right way, get on a trail or something, you're going to run into them. You know, and I'm not trying to call them in. I'm just trying to get close to them. And like you said, coyote the herd or, or stick with them and wait for that one moment where they slip up and always have the wind in your favor. But, um, but yeah, man, that game plan is, is everything and it takes time to figure it out. And, um, it's always changing every, uh, landscape you go to, it changes, uh, and there's different tools that you can use to get in there. Um, and it, it just keeps that passion going, man. Um, and, and I love listening to your podcast and picking up the skills you get from all the different, different guys out there doing different things. So if you had any questions about some of the areas that I, hunt in let me know about it 
Yeah, uh, absolutely. I love what you said, like the, the, the chess piece. It is such a chess game sitting back there. And, um, you know, you also mentioned that you'd had success, like going in after a buck, like, like all in. And there's something to be said for that, like being aggressive. And I definitely hunt elk more aggressive than I hunt mule deer. But, you know, that aggressiveness, like I have an aggressive style to me where, you know, I, I really want to go all in. And, and it, it's benefited me in the past is I see a deer and it doesn't matter how far he is or where he's at. It's like, well, I'm going to go try to give myself a chance. I'm going to go for it and always going for it, always putting in the, that effort and, like sometimes it's easy to sit back and come up with a million excuses why you can't kill that deer. So it is such a chess game, and it's such like a uh, an individual journey of building your skill set and building your uh, your preference for hunting, whether that's aggressive or really sitting back. Like I know uh, I just did a podcast with Tony, and I'm always amazed at his patience on a big buck. Like he'll find a big buck, and this story he was telling me about, he sat on this buck for three days. And it's like usually I'll sit on a big buck and, and I'll wait for my opportunity, but I'm I'm usually not a three, four day, five day guy to make a play. It's usually like, you know, a day, a morning, an evening, or like I'm just looking for any chance where I see that where I think I have that high percentage play and then I'm all in. And so like like it is it's such a balance between being aggressive and also yeah. being patient and making the right play in a high percentage play. Uh, and we all have to figure that out for ourselves of, of what our style is and what works for us. And, and, and you do, you, these animals are just going to win a lot. Like you, you make some mistakes and you blow stocks. You just try to be at your best. And I, I know <clears throat> I try to keep that, that element of surprise, not stock to failure, like really let those animals make that last move. But that that's the biggest key for me is just keeping that element of surprise, like not letting them know I'm hunting them, not letting them know I'm there. And it, it doesn't always work out that way. They're so good. Their senses are so good that sometimes you get into range and they already know you're there staring at you. And your only move to make is to try to draw slow and get a shot because you know he's he's looking in your direction and he heard something up there and you know it's just um it's a matter of time before he blows out but i think that's the the beautiful thing about it is there uh there is no one path to success that we all have to find like our own path to success right you know? and just like your elk hunting how um you know, you like to spot and stalk them and like to move with them, but you use those calls as a locator to, to be able to know there's a bull down in there, to, to be able to give yourself a chance. And I, I think that's what it is. It's just building like these personal preferences to, to when we go all in or when we think it's right. And it's such a gray area. It's not like a black and white. It's a, it's almost like a feeling or like these instincts tell you that I can kill that buck and then you go for it. You know, it, it's, it just doesn't seem so black and white to me, you know. Do you find that like hunting these different places that uh, that you rely upon your instincts, or do you? How do you make your decision process? I think it's it's really different for every area. Um, and you know, you mentioned how some people can sit on a deer for three to four days, um, and, and and I haven't had success with patterning mule deer like some people might have, you know, I, I think that I've seen elk in areas and they'll use the same spine every day at the same time, like clockwork to get out of an area unless they're pushed. But mule deer, I mean, they'll go across a face that's two miles long and come, come up a different spot every morning. 
And I haven't been able to have the kind of confidence knowing that you could sit on something for four days and wait for him to sit in the perfect bed to get to get that shot before the fear sets in with me that that big buck's going to take off and I'm never going to see him and the velvet's going to come off and I'll never see him again. So I try to find them in one of the first huntable spots as quickly as possible and then go after them and, and, and then just take it easy and make sure you don't mess it up with the wind or something like that. And if it, if it starts to get screwy with the wind back out, it's safer than, than blowing them out. You know, and I find a lot of the times with these Western bucks if you if they wind you you could be done entirely uh but you usually get like one mini blowout before they're gone for good like you can push them a little bit on the side of the mountain but if you do it like twice in one day or twice in two days like they're going to new country where i hunt at least um so instinctually you just have to feel that as the hunt's happening and unraveling right in front of you and it, it just changes all the time and one of the things that I think I like to do when I go to these different areas and hunt is I kind of try to talk to locals and be friendly with people because you never know when you're going to lose your key in your pocket and you need someone to help you. (laughs) A and B, a lot of these guys that uh, that hunt these remote areas will keep their information pretty tight to the to to themselves. But if if they see you there day in and day out and they know you're kind of passionate and committed about it. And, you know, year after year, you're in these areas, you make friends with folks and you learn about different areas and different tactics and things you might not ever use. Um, and I met a friend on this last hunt in Arizona had, that had been hunting this area for years, I think eight or nine or ten years. And I'd been in there for about four or five years. And he had killed a couple deer over 190 and he was hunting this big 200 inch plus buck this year. And he just had he I think he had harvested fifty fifty animals with a bow over the course of his life. He was in the sixties. And he was just this patient guy and he put face paint on and he would get into the moon cycles and you know, like the hunt and fish best time calculator and the soul lunar times where you know, like I wanna be out there at ten forty five AM. Like that's the best time to hunt. And I'm like, that's crazy, man. Like they're already in their second bed. I don't know what's going on. And you're out there and like you want to be there at ten forty five in the morning. And this guy had success doing this stuff all the time. So I was I we went back to the camp and we compared notes for two hours and I love meeting people out there that have the passion that you and I do and comparing notes about stuff in different areas. Um and, and you learn so much from the locals and the people that have time if they're willing to open up and share that stuff with you. And you have to be patient with them and show them that you're respectful of their areas and you're not trying to get their spot. But you're really just uh, a student of the game and you want to be the best bow hunter you can be. There's so much to learn from people that have been there for decades before you. And that's one of the, the most interesting things I love about bow hunting, too, is each state has a different adventure with the people that you meet. And some of these people I talk to four or five times a year, sometimes more than family members, because I just have so much to talk to them about throughout the course of the year. And you check in with them, and it's it's awesome. And you talk about the tags are drawn and all that, and uh, that one buck that got away. But, yeah, man, uh, as far as instinctual, I think there's a certain amount of instincts and a lot of learned knowledge and air, and there's a, there's a mathematical equation for all those things, and that's the, the way the decision gets made, and it's never the same thing twice. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's kind of the beauty of it. Um, man, that is a really good point you bring up about like um, just, just being um, 
you know, social, like there's a social aspect to it, but there's so much to learn there from somebody that has hunted that place for so many years. And, um, man, when you can, when you can meet some guys on the, the trail or when you can meet some guys in the area and, and then share information, I, and even like building this network of people, you know, like you talk, you were talking about how you uh, touch bases with them multiple times a year and talk about the tags you're going to draw, like building this network of guys that you know, you're not looking for their <clears throat> secret spot or uh, the one spot that they're hunting or anything like that, but being able to uh, share information on things. Like I know, uh, you know, I've, I've made friends with Tony Treach and he hunts a, a lot of places out West and, and he knows that I hunt a lot of places out West. And so like whenever he draws a tag or he's thinking about applying for a tag, uh, not all of them by any means. And he's Tony's really good. Is he's built even a bigger network than I have. Of he knows all these people that have hunted all these units. So like last year when he drew this Nevada hunt, I'd drawn the Nevada hunt for elk with, or my buddy Dan did. I went down to go help him <clears> hunt it. But Tony had a deer tag in there. And I remember talking to Tony, and he just mentioned all this information he got from all these different guys from reaching out and asking questions and things. And, and not that he's looking for a secret spot, but he's he's looking for this general information about that unit. And I think that's part of my game that I need to uh, adapt and evolve and be better at. And I do have a network of friends, and I'm always willing to give information in a place that I've hunted. And, and likewise, but I, I need to use that more because I think that's such a, a powerful tool, you know, and and also, like you said, just being uh, nice and cordial to guys you meet. And like if you're respectful and, you know, you you pull up to a trailhead and you see a guy going left, like I'm not going to walk left. I'm going to go right or I'm going to go, you know, straight forward deeper or I'm going to give him his space. And I think being respectful of people in their space and letting them have their own hunt, you know, people appreciate that. And so. I, I think that's such a major portion, and I know, you know, hunting a new spot, uh, you know, I'm just trying to think of some of the areas that I've hunted where I've ran into guys, and, and I try to share information with guys that I've just met as well, you know, maybe about, not about the big buck that I'm hunting, but, you know, tell them, yeah, I saw a few bucks over off that rim rock over there, and, and show them a picture and say, yeah, if that's something you're into, they were right over that rim rock shelf or something of that nature, uh, but yeah, I think building a network uh, of people that you can trust and i know uh, uh travis nowatney saved me one time in idaho where i was hunting um uh high country mule deer and and they can be real sporadic in that idaho backcountry and i remember you know i scouted really hard and um i was hunting really hard but i was just striking out and it just happened to be travis called me in that time period and started talking to him and he was just like the uh, the nicest guy with information and gave me a mountain range and a trailhead and he said yeah there's a lot of bucks in there i've hunted them in there and and lo and behold like that was the key to my success that year i ended up arrowing a really nice 180 inch deer in one of cool. those mountain ranges that you know i'm totally sworn to secrecy and i don't go back to his spot but then you know i'm able to return the favor as travis drew a nevada tag that i had hunted before mm -hmm. and he was scouting it not seeing many deer and he was able to call me up and ask me some questions, and all of a sudden, I'm able to return this huge favor that he did for me by, by right. giving him some locations and general information and, and able to help him out. So, man, I like that just sparked something in my mind when you were talking about that, how like building this network of guys that you can trust and share information with. And I know like my, my close circle of friends here in Montana, 
I, I don't hold back any information. I tell them everything. And likewise, they tell me everything. And so, like, if you're hunting in a camp with, like, three, four guys that are totally open about what they saw, like, all of a sudden, you're gaining three or four times the knowledge in that area than you would just by yourself or holding everything close to exactly. your chest. You share yep. this information, and sometimes we get back to elk camp, and I get back and I didn't see an elk in my this drainage. I'm, you know, I'm kind of riding low. It's like, oh man, I didn't find any elk, didn't find a big bull. Where am I going to go next? And I, I get back to camp, and all of a sudden, my buddy's been on this party of elk, and he's like, hey, come in this spot with me. I'm going to hunt down this ridge. You hunt down that ridge, and all of a sudden, I'm into elk just because of my network of friends and network of sharing information. And you just get to understand the unit and the areas you're hunting so much better. So. Man, that's an important part that I that I've never really talked about too much. That I think is a is key for learning these areas that uh, that we all need to leverage that you know, and not trying to take so much information, but also give information and be a good hunting partner and a you know. And, a, a, and, and and keep an open mind is what I think is so important because everybody's got a different perspective, and there's so many ways to success, and uh, you know. This guy likes to hunt over here because he knows that's where the water falls and eventually a deer is going to come, you know, and the other guy wants to spend a lot of time glassing and everybody can get to the same buck in different ways. And it's just interesting to see, uh, you know, some of these guys that you meet that have been there for year after year and they have a totally different approach that's not your style and you could go crazy sitting on water for five days straight. But then you but then this guy has killed 49 mule deer with a bow and you're like, wow. Like there's something to that. And I've been out there for 18 days chasing one, but he's got one down in five days and it's a 190 inch buck. But I'd go, I'd be pulling my hair out if I was sitting in the same spot for five days straight, but you got to keep an open mind. And it's like all these different things, uh, you get this knowledge and it becomes part of the bank of knowledge. And I love that about it. Um, so I'm always trying to make friends and, and that's not like I'm hunting where there's tons of guys all the time, but you always kind of run into one or two people every time you go on a hunt, you know, and, uh, and the spot that I hunt locally, I think it's like, uh, what is it? It's 20 miles on the gravel road to the spot where I put my canvas tent up and then I get on the ATV and I go like another seven or eight miles to 10 miles in any given direction. And then you get off and I'm hiking about one to two miles to glass and I may or may not put a bivy sack up there and spend the night if I feel like it's better to not make any noise on the way in or be in the area for a little while uh, to, to get after the deer that I'm after or I might jump to another spot if I'm not seeing what I want in, in the type of activity and go clear 20 miles this way um, so but inherently you always run into somebody you know, you could run into a couple of cowboys wrangling the cattle out of this area because they're going to market in a couple of weeks. Or it could be like I was out there a season ago and I ran into two people on ATVs and they were doing a songbird survey for this, the University of Oregon. And they would just go out into a little canyon and sit there at first light and listen to birds. And they were able to identify these different birds and figure out what the population was for a certain square mile. And they were awesome. And we're, I sat down and was drinking beers with them three days into this thing. And they were telling me that there were bucks over on this ridge. And it was like, great. People that all appreciate the outdoors, sharing information and being nice with one another. Like, you got to do that with folks on the trail because you never know when you're going to need them or, or when you're going to make a lifetime memory that way. Yeah, uh, man, that's it. Like, um, 
you you said it earlier, a student of the game, and and uh, then you just mentioned it recently, like uh, having an open mind. Um, I I think um, w- one thing I love about hunting is creative thinking is rewarded. Like to be able to think outside the box or to be able to problem solve is, is such a major component to Western hunting. Like to to have your brain work that way. Um, I, I know I I've, I've killed a lot of deer and a lot of a lot of elk just by creative thinking like coming up with a new way to solve that problem like a uh, a buck in nevada that i hunted that i'd try to get to his second bed and come in from above but he was living on the lee wind side so every time i did that my wind would inevitably drop down to him you know even it was just the lee wind side so even though i had thermals coming up the directionals would blow over that ridge and kind of washer machine that wind and like mm-hmm. every time i'd get busted and so i i didn't end up killing the buck but one lesson that i learned was all of a sudden, like I had been blown on two stocks trying to come in from above, and it was like, oh, man, I just got to think of this a different way. <laughs> and yeah. so I ended up coming in on the bottom of that buck first thing in the morning with the directionals coming downhill, like a first mm. light. And so I was finally able to beat the wind, and I did put myself in bow range of that buck 40-some yards away waiting for him to stand and got picked up by a by a two point that was a hundred yards up the ridge and blew up the whole scenario. But it, it taught me a good lesson about like thinking outside the box, like that creative thinking. And, and yeah, I, there's no rules. You yeah. have to, it, it, it changes on the drop of a dime or the change of the wind. You're right. Yeah. That, that creative thinking of trying to solve that problem. I, I, I love that. And um, yeah, you, I you, wanted to, I wanted ahead. to ask you something, yep. you know, I, I've been doing this for eight years now, which is no, no long time at all. And there's a lot of people have been out there for longer than I have. I feel like I get my percentage of success goes down when I get too close to animals. And I feel like there's a, a sweet spot between like 40 to 60 yards that I prefer to be at for executing an archery shot. And I can tell you that like I've blown it from 15 to 30 yards way more times than I have at 50 to 60 yards. <laughs> and I don't know if it's a confidence thing uh, about being too close, but stuff happens so fast when you're that close to the animals where I feel like I can like kind of chill out a little bit and get my bearings and do something between 40, 50, 60, 70 yards on a shot. And I wanted to see how you felt about that. I mean, elk's different because they're, they're barging in and they're doing stuff but for mule deer and you're in a bed and you're real close to one, there's a sweet spot range for me. Yeah, you're spot on. Yeah, you've, you've been paying attention in the classroom. Like, that's exactly right. <laughs> Inside that, you know, I've killed the majority of my bucks 40 to 60, and I do have some close kills or, you know, sometimes the topography topography will lend itself to me getting closer where my shot ends up closer, but I'm with you. I like to get, you know, we talked about that element of surprise, and I like to keep that, and so I like to... You know, I, I see one of the mistakes I see is that guys try to stalk in too close and they may get to 40 yards, a shot that they can make the majority of the time, but they don't have a shot at that buck. So they just keep creeping in until mm. finally they stalked a failure and that buck knows they're there and he blows out of his bed and you think, oh, I didn't I didn't get him, but I stalked to 20 yards. Well, that that close range, those deer, you're right, they, they – uh, 
they don't put up with much inside of that 30, 40 yards. Like that is so close on a mule deer. So they just won't put up with noise in that range. They won't put up with any movement in that where it seems like you can just conceal yourself that 40 to 60 yards and then wait for that buck to stand up or wait for that buck to make that last move. So, right. um, man, I could there's do- almost no stand up when they're 20 10, 15, 20, 30 yards. It's just a blowout. Like where if they think something's going on at 60, they'll stand and give you a moment. But if you if there's any sign of trouble close, it's a blowout. There's no stand, I feel like. Yeah, that's exactly right. Yeah, that's exactly right. Yeah, that 40 to 60 that, you know, and you have to execute a really good shot at those ranges because they're one of the longer shots. So it's going to be tougher. Like you're going to have to really execute well at that range. But I'm with you. I'll I'll take my chances at that 40 to 60 on a deer instead of trying to get into that 20 to 40 because in too right. close to those deer it is just danger zone. You know, they just mm-hmm. pick up on every little thing. And, and so I, I'm the same way. One trick that I picked up the other day, uh, I can't remember if I I told you I was talking to Tony, but he does this in, in Kansas for whitetail and mule deer and then was talking about it in other areas. But he's he's using a decoy. And um, so what he's doing is he's using a decoy during the rut. So, like, this would be a good tactic like I was thinking of that Arizona, uh, you know, over-the-counter hunt in January during the rut. Um, he uses these decoys, and he's got three different mounting brackets. You know, one that'll stab into the ground with stakes. It'll mount mm-hmm. to his bow, and he can shoot. And, and one other thing, like a clip that he can clip to a branch. And so what he does is he's not decoying these deer in, but he's sneaking inside that bow range, inside that 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 you know whatever it is 40 to 60 or 30 to 50 he sneaks inside that range and then he sets up that decoy and, and then he just waits for that buck to get up and when that buck gets up he, mm. he looks back at that decoy and he and feels it, comfortable yeah he just gives tony time to get this shot and so the the bucks don't blow out of their bed so much and i thought man that is really smart tony like i've never used a decoy I'm all a spot and sock guy, but that made sense to me in my mind of that, you know, again, back to that creative thinking or that problem solving uh, of sticking that decoy. Because especially in that Arizona desert, it seems like you sneak into bow range or, or any place for that matter. But a lot of times those deer get up and they see you sitting there like uh, uh, maybe mm-hmm. I'm not in the shadows or maybe I'm not tucked into a tree as good as I should be or it's open terrain but sometimes those bucks will stand up and see me immediately you know and then the gigs up or I don't get a shot where right. that decoy like may just give a guy an extra chance to get that shot so I I thought that was like a like a good example of thinking outside the box of using that decoy and something that I that I may try in the future especially on these rut hunts Sure. And you have to put your pride aside, too, because you you can look goofy doing certain things and you just don't have to to worry about your ego. Because I did the same thing on an antelope hunt in Wyoming um, where I put this goofy little hat on that had a buck. It was a buck hat. It looked like an antelope. And then I put the shirt on that was like tan skin colored. And then you'd crawl around a little bit. And boy, could you get a lot closer and you get a lot more time to get a shot off before they buggered off. Because they're curious and they and, they, and you kind of look like them and they didn't know what's going on and, and and that's that's the difference. It's the extra ten seconds you get to range and shoot versus seeing a white butt run away from you. And you know, I sent pictures to my friends and my family and they're all laughing at me because I got this antelope hat on and and a shirt that looks like an antelope. But hey, I went home 
with three antelope on that trip trip with the bow and it was awesome and we were eating antelope for a week because because we thought outside the box and we did it man that antelope eats so good i I love your tactics there too i talked to that brandon van dyken that makes those hats and makes those shirts and that be the decoy that you're talking about and that's how he uses it like he's a really good bow hunter but he stalks into range and then he's got the hat on that buys him those extra seconds you know it's it's not like you're wearing it thinking the antelope are going to come running into you or anything like that you're just buying yourself that little bit of time and exactly and, and like tony explained you know instead of playing into these deer's strength you're pl- you're playing into their weakness and it's amazing how they just see that profile of that deer and they think it's another buck and believe it's another buck and can buy you minutes and then also like they get up and they look at that decoy and you're kind of hiding behind it and you're mm-hmm. able – they put up with movement and motion to where a lot of times that deer stands up and you go to draw your bow. They see that movement and they're gone, you know. But he was talking right. about that decoy being able to draw his bow and get away with it on these giant whitetails and, and muleys that he's harvested in Kansas and uh, – yeah, that made sense to me. So yeah, I know what you're saying about like like uh, uh, feeling, you know, feeling like uh, uh, you know wearing a hat or you know maybe it isn't like the like the the best fit, but it's playing into these animals' weaknesses instead of their strengths and thinking outside the box. And like you say, you were eating antelope meat after that, which are extremely difficult to harvest with a bow. So it, it was your creative thinking that got you into range and got you a shot at those things. Man, I I think that's a great example. Yep. Yep. Uh, I, I, I think you have to do what works always. Um, and you know, it's not about going out there and having all the best gear all the time and you got to have stuff that, that gets it done for you and, and it gives you that experience and not necessarily, you know, success is not always killing the animal or taking the antelope, but, but having the experience where you get close and whatever gets you there. And, and I have this lucky shirt that, that, I, I, I fell down a hill and like it, uh, a big branch ripped through the stomach area. And I, I thought, man, if it had been two inches farther this way, I would have been like shish kebabbed on a tree. Um, but that shirt makes me feel comfortable and I wear it all the time on those days where I think something's going to happen. It's the lucky shirt, right? And it's like the oldest camo. It's probably not working that great, but that shirt does it for me on the confidence. Oh, standpoint and i wear it when i go out after i've located that deer and man i've killed some of the biggest animals with that shirt on and i'll put it under stuff and i just keep it with me and maybe that's because i'm a baseball player and i have superstitions and things like that but uh but it's whatever makes you comfortable whatever gets the job done and and keeps your confidence high because you got to have confidence with archery and archery equipment and and what you're doing you know and, and and all that stuff plays into that all the practice you get the and everything I love that. You're trying to get luck on your side. I think there's so many great correlations between baseball and between bow hunting. I I love that when you're standing up to bat, like, um, you, you know, you're in this high pressure situation and trying to do something that's extremely difficult, you know, and I, I think being able to perform under that high pressure is, is the same demands that bow hunting requires, you know. I bet you see a lot of correlations since you love both of them. For sure. Yeah, I was a pitcher, and I think that there's situations you win and lose at but it's always pressure all the time and and it's one of those things it's it's i would assume golfing's the same way because there you can sit there and just think about how many ways you can blow it or you can 
focus on the task at hand and executing all the things like your checklist, like you're talking about, pull through the shot, make sure the wind's good and just kind of go into cruise control with your training, which is the most important way to not blow it. Cause if you start looking at antlers and thinking about what you're going to do and, Oh my God, there's five on this side and 10 on that side and he's huge. And what's he doing? And then you forget about the, the two point buck that's 30 yards to your right. That's going to blow everything up. You know, you have to stay focused on the task of what you're doing to get that deer down. And it's always happening all the time and you can't lose focus with one thing or another. Um, so yeah, the pressure is on <laughs> and, and you know, you gotta make sure your equipment's good and all the stuff's ready to go because what's the success rate, Brian? I mean, we know it's like, it's tricky out there. You look at those numbers, uh, in the, in the regulation books, it's like archery success, 15%, 10%, 8%, 30%. The, the fancy draw tag, 50%, you know, it's like, it's almost always 50% or lower, more like 20% or lower. So like, you know, there's that old saying that, what do they say that, uh, 90, what, what's that percentage? A hundred percent of the guys that kill stuff or t- 10% of the guys, there's some saying about how it's the same people over and over again that are the successful people. Yeah. Uh, um, 10% of the, 10% of the guys harvest 90% of the animals. You know? That's so, it. That's it right there. It's kind of like the Yogi bear thing. It, half the game is 90% mental at baseball reference. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, you're exactly right. Those success odds, you know, a lot of them run even in single digits for bow and arrow, or like you said, 15%, but, but even at 20%, which is a really high success rate for a bow and arrow, you know, that's right. being successful one in every five years. But, but somehow there's these guys that buck the odds year in and year out, and, right. and it's because and you're of the, one of them. Yeah, uh, well, I've been fortunate, yeah, to, to be able to build my skill set. But I all I I wasn't always one of those guys. I've had to to work right. my way into that position. But yeah, it, you're exactly right. You you build that skill set, and pretty soon you you start knocking on the door and breaking into that ten percent of guys that harvest ninety percent of the animals that are consistently successful, and and you know. That's that's the key, and that's that's what we keep striving for, for sure. Right. Yeah. Um, well, Michael, man, it has been so fun connecting with you on the podcast. I just like um, that these different, you know, guys that I'm able to meet, guys like you that have such a passion for the game. Like you're the perfect guest for the podcast, man. This has been a ton of fun. Well, thanks, buddy. I appreciate it. Uh, I, there's so many things I'd love to talk to you about, and I know there's only a certain amount of time, but uh, yeah. I wish you all the success this year with your tags and the hunts and everything you go on. I hope you draw that Ibex tag. And, uh, yeah, man, let's, let's talk again. If you, uh, if you'd like. Oh, likewise, man. You're the perfect guest for the podcast. Yeah. We, we have to keep in touch. Like I, I want to be in your network of friends, like we were talking about. And, um, yeah, I, I want to get you back on the podcast. Um, so yeah, let's, um, get after this hunting season and I'll check in and keep in touch with you and, and, uh, let's have you back on, man. You're just a, a great guest and shared so much great insight into what it takes in, uh, you know, for, to be consistently successful bow hunting, man. So yeah, I appreciate you. It made for a great podcast. Okay. Good deal. All right. Sounds good. We'll talk to you soon. All right, brother. Take care. Okay. All right. That's a wrap. Oh, I told you guys that was a good conversation. I really enjoyed meeting Michael. I just, um, I, I just, uh, I really like doing this podcast. I've been able to connect with guys, 
you know, and, and I had never heard of Michael before the, the podcast or before we connected through social media. And he's just a great guy and, and was great on the podcast. So uh, I, I'm just so happy to um, be immersed in this community and be able to, uh, you know, have these in-depth conversations that really help me with my hunting as well. Uh, so I really enjoyed it. Hope you guys enjoyed it, too. And thanks for Michael for taking the time. I think we did an early morning recording uh, to fit it in with my busy schedule. So uh, thanks to him, and I'll definitely have him on again. I think he did great on the podcast. Uh, I also want to thank Matthews for building uh, the, the, these great shooting bows. Uh, so impressed with this V3. Uh, can't wait to have this thing through an entire season. Feels so good to execute a really good shot on that bear. And... Um, you know, I just know that bow is going to do its job. It it just holds a tune so well. It's just they just make great bows. So um, if you're in the market for one, uh, make sure to shoot them. You know, we all have personal preferences and different bows that fit us. And there's a lot of good brands on the market. Uh, but just make sure you shoot Matthews with these other brands and see what you think, because I, I think they're building a heck of a bow. I also want to thank Sig Sauer Optics. Uh, I've got messages um, from you guys, you know, asking about these optics, asking about the scope and things, and and I really believe in their optics. Uh, they're building a great product. Uh, their binos, using those 11 by 45s for my my everyday carry, and then um, I have those 15 by 56s that I'm super impressed with, and then also, um, you know, that spotting scope, that 27 by 55 by 80. Um, man, that thing can that thing can see some distant country. That thing can judge some deer. Um, man, I'm so impressed with it. And then, uh, of course, the rangefinders, rifle scopes, things of that nature. So make sure to check out Sig Sauer Optics. And we really appreciate the support from these companies on the podcast. Um, it really helps me to to bring you guys this this info each and every week. So thanks to those guys. Man. Um, yeah, like I say, just busy. I know I mentioned it on the intro. Um, just racing around here, there, and everywhere and trying to, to spend quality family time. We were out at the lake last weekend and um, just trying to hang out with the girls and um, get ready. I mean, it just seems like a hunting season kind of sneaks up on me. You know, I'm uh, throughout the winter, it seems like it's so far away. And then all of a sudden, it's just a couple months out, you know, so... Uh, just taking my my preparation to that next level. Been getting in some really solid long runs and good elevation, and uh, getting my legs ready. Some good weighted rucks, and um, you know, bear season also helps with that. Being out and hiking around everywhere, and uh, man, it's just it's going to be a great summer and going to be a great hunting season. I know it. You know, this this hard work always pays off. And then just that shooting it's like once season gets here you have the skill set that you have you have the shooting ability that you have and so like right now is the time to improve it and um so so just trying to 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 up my arrow count and i know it's like not all about the arrows every day it's quality arrows but that muscle memory is so important and so um you know for me anyways like i i like to shoot 50 arrows a day if i can get it in and you know some day, some days that's 20 arrows and some days that's 100 arrows but um yeah really trying to get that work in and i'm psyched for this western hunting summit because i've got uh, two long weekends that i'm gonna go spend like up at the ranch where ryan holds this deal and he's got a whole 3d course set up so i'm sure i'll be shooting a ton of arrows shooting them at 3d targets which i think it's really important to to shoot at 3d targets um i think it gets you ready to aim at deer and not hold on a spot to be able to pick that spot and then let that pin float and execute. 
So um, super stoked to go shoot at a bunch of 3D targets there. So that'll definitely help my game. I, I do have um, a weekend planned at MAF. I'm not sure if I'm speaking or not. I think I'm I think I'm going to speak. It's like that one down in um, Utah down in there. So I think it's the weekend of um, oh, July... 23rd or July 23rd I think I want to say down there in Utah I should have those dates in front of me uh but running by the seat of my pants but I I know it's somewhere right around that weekend of the 23rd but you can look it up on uh MAF they have it on the website so I'll be down there shooting that 3D course I think speaking I think they're going to show one of my films down there um so super stoked it's uh it's going to be a lot of fun so get done with that in in late July and then um cut loose for hunting season so uh, I know you guys are getting excited because uh, you guys uh, are cut from the same cloth that I am. And uh, I also know that you guys are working hard towards your goals and it pays off. It's the evolution of a bow hunter. Um, like I say, it's showing up at that trailhead and being undeniable. So um, keep the hard work up. Keep the stoke up for hunting season. It's coming. And uh, check in with you guys next week.